Short Reverse Show, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi, Emily, how's it going? I'm all right, thanks, Ed. I'm just uh, basking in the charm of Emma Thompson's gig hosting SNL mm, this week. Yes. Which you haven't seen the sketches for yet, but I was just reassuring you before we started there, they are a treat. I'm sure they are. She's one of the most charming and effervescent people uh, we have. Uh, I think it's fair to say. Absolutely. Uh, I guess that takes us into our first story uh, this week, which was uh, just today or late last night, it was announced that Peggy Lipton had passed away. Peggy Lipton was an actress and supermodel who first became sort of well-known in the 70s for being in the Mod Squad, where she played kind of a cop who went undercover as a hippie, very much a counterculture icon. And then certainly for you and I, and I think a lot of people our generation, she was known for playing the character of Norma on Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks The Return. And that's kind of the work of hers that I personally am most familiar with. And yeah, I just uh, was, as ever, when uh, someone associated with Twin Peaks passes away, I'm just sad because that's one of my favourite television shows ever. And I love everyone involved in that uh, in that show. Uh, but I really do feel, you know, that she was such a, a warm and vibrant presence. And even on The Return, you know, where... She and the other character of Ed got to kind of rekindle their romance after so many years. And the show had, uh, they provided, you know, one of the, the rare glimpses of, of hope and warmth and what was otherwise a very bleak 18 hours of television. Her passing kind of like really does sting, I guess, in in that context. Same, Ed, same. I think she absolutely was charming and effervescent on screen she had a real almost like 40s noir quality she was incredibly still and that's the thing that I think about when I think about Norma she didn't have mm. to do a lot she's very subtle and so she had that kind yeah. of gravitas of just drawing you in and from all accounts it seemed that she was just incredibly warm and generous so that was really sad and for you know her kids Rashida Jones is, is her daughter with, with Quincy Jones. Um, I think it's just another kicker that this has come on Mother's Day in America as well. Mm. It's just really, um, yeah, it, it does sting. I think you're right, particularly because Norma was sort of representative of that hope. And I think for many people, it's come as a shock. Obviously, you know, it's really none of the public's business necessarily. Mm. But you look at other Twin Peaks characters and we think of... Um, a log lady, people being well aware of actors' kind of struggles and, and health issues, and, and people who couldn't come back to the return because they passed away. But it just when it when it's just announced, and it, she was really she was really special in terms of her work, and the fact that she, in her own life, you know, in terms of being part of a high profile interracial couple, mm, and then yeah. you know taking time away from work to raise her kids and then coming back. I was reading in an article how nervous she felt coming back on Twin Peaks, but then that became one of her iconic roles and certainly set herself in the minds of our generation, certainly, you and I. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, rest in peace, uh, Peggy Lipton. The next story is much, much, much sillier. So, so very silly <laughs> in comparison. It was, uh, it was something that I toyed with doing a whole episode about on my own next week. Uh, <laughs> sorry, on my own last week, because last week we didn't put out an episode because uh, I had an eight hour power cut uh, and wasn't able to record. And I was like, oh, I'll do an episode on my own uh, and upload it. But then the internet didn't come back until like three in the morning. And I was like, oh, that fuck it never mind <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss it on the main show because i just find the whole the whole mess around this so fascinating but the trailer for the live action of sonic the hedgehog movie debuted uh, the other week and it was met with uh, kind of a very powerful wave of derision uh, i would have to say from all corners of the internet and uh you know possibly deservedly so it looks pretty bad in terms of 
um, just the tone of the movie and what it's trying to do and the effects and the design of Sonic, who is uh, creepy and disturbing. But what kind of then takes it to the next level of, oh, they appear to have made a bad Sonic thing, which is uh, not exactly a rare thing because <laughs> that that character and that brand has been fairly uh, misused over the last 20 odd years. What kind of takes it to the next level was that the director, the day after the trailer hit, uh, went on Twitter and says, we've heard your concerns, we're going to redesign the character essentially before the movie comes out in November, which is quite an astonishing thing to have happened for the internet to have had that much of an impact and for what I guess is being billed as a fairly major release to change tack and to basically redesign its central character with not a huge amount of time left especially considering it's a movie where the main character is entirely CD created and that's going to require thousands of hours of, of, of work to get that to uh, you know be changed and to come up with a new design the the fact that that has happened because of fan outcry or not even fan outcry just people being like why why have you done this um (laughs) is quite is quite startling Uh, i can't really think of anything uh similar similar happening uh and i will just say uh, i've really appreciated whoever it was who tweeted that the movie was getting a day one patch which i think is a great joke it is just oh, I mean, why, why does he have tea? I, 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 <laughs> I just think, I mean, you're right. Like as a as an intellectual property, Sonic the Hedgehog has taken an absolute battering, and I think that cursed image of the Sonic curry uh, floats yeah. around now and again, and it's vivid blue, possibly the only thing I wouldn't consider eating curry wise. But <laughs> this just doesn't sound great to me. I mean, you've got. Jim Kettery and James Marsden and I guess it could be fun but it's just this is the kind of thing where if it's just not liking the animation style and I mean I really don't I, did, I, did I mention about the teeth mm-hmm. but and his spindly legs oh. and humanish human-like torso <laughs> how is he managing to be bits of everything and yet nothing at once it is just that worry of the hundreds of thousands of hours of work that's just going to be going into that to make that november 8th release date is that going to happen are they going to push the schedule back is this now cursed and i Hmm. just wonder how audiences are going to react to this kind of i mean it's pandering it's not because this isn't offensive right this isn't like Hmm casting decisions being overhauled because of under, you know understandably marginalized groups rise up and, and activists say no this is not okay yeah it's, like we say it's a nightmare design he's not representing anyone um and or misrepresenting anyone even this mm. is just pure kind of taste isn't it and the fact that this is going to have such a knock on effect on a production team it just makes me think of that Bill Hicks um, skit about, you know, uh, test audiences and, ten, you know, dep- depending on what these, you know, 100 random yahoos think is going gonna, is gonna to be what the deciding factor is. And, I mean, it was pretty much not just 100 random yahoos, but the entirety of the internet that pushed mm. back. But I just fear that what is this going to be good for? I don't see how it's going to be good for anyone. It's not, I don't think it's actually going to make much difference to the design. I don't think mm. anyone's going to be really that interested in seeing it beyond the core group who are going to see it anyway. I don't think you're going to like really boost your audience. And I definitely not good for the production crew. And it just made me think of with Red Dead Redemption 2, for example. In the run-up to the game being released, all you heard was, I mean, you'll know this better than I do, Ed, but all I heard was how horrific the working conditions were, um, people being pushed to the brink. And then when the game came out, because it got such good reviews, (laughs) a lot of people were like, oh, well, you know, sacrifice wasn't in vain. Whereas Mm. I I think this is the vainest sacrifice we're going to see culturally for some time. 
Yeah, as someone who regularly, when I first started in the games industry when I was 18, would work 105-hour weeks, <sighs> I can say it's not fun. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's a real terrible grind uh, that you should really only do when you're 18 or 19, uh, and not, uh, as a lot of people do, well into their 20s and 30s, when it could really um, badly affect you. And uh, yeah, that's that was kind of like my first thought when... It was announced that they were going to redesign the characters, like the amount of crunch that often not terribly well-treated and uh, I think largely non-unionised uh, effects teams will have to do in order to make this oh, happen. Yeah. Like, it, in what seems like a very hasty decision, considering it was announced like the next day. Yeah, it, it does seem like it's going to be pretty miserable for everyone involved to spend tens and tens of hours uh, of their lives just to see if they can make a Sonic movie ever so slightly better. <laughs> it's not it's not a great use of anyone's anyone's time. Uh, I also find it really weird that this is how they decided they were going to adapt Sonic and how it's weirdly the almost polar opposite of the Super Mario Brothers movie, um, which is probably appropriate since Sonic and Mario have always been uh, in competition and... and uh, in reaction to each other in some way but like the the thing that was really strange and interesting about the super mario brothers movie was like they took a story that is fairly simple and easy to follow and just made it super weird <laughs> and like made every aspect of it just like incredibly distressing and un unusual and what they've done with sonic is they've taken like a world that is actually fairly well developed and has like a very clear theme of like environmentalism and of fighting against oppressive forces and seemed to have stripped all of that away. The pretty much the entire supporting cast had just been like, what if Sonic came to earth <laughs> and, <laughs> and ran around a bit? And it seems, it seems very weird that that's the, the way they would go. Cause it's not like, uh, cause like every previous adaptation of Sonic, that if you know, you look at the various cartoon series from the nineties, like they were all very much, oh, Sonic and his friends exist in this world. Robotnik is trying to take over it. They're going to fight against them. They're a resistance fighters. Like, it's a fairly simple and uh, easy-to-grasp narrative that you can pretty easily follow and you would think would lend itself well to a feature film yes. because it's also got, like, a lot of lore and world-building that you can do. Like, just plopping him in the real world feels like... And other people said this. It makes it feel like a weird throwback to, like, the 90s in a strange way, as as evidence also by, like, Jim Carrey being in it and Gangster's yeah. Paradise being on the trailer for some reason. It's all very weird. Uh, final story before we get into the main topic. Uh, again, it's a trailer-related, but I think a generally much more positive one was the debut of the trailer for Judy, the Judy Garland biopic starring Renee Zellweger, which is coming out towards the end of the year is very much a uh, an oscar play it feels like uh, it feels like the award season is really kicking it off and you and i have both watched the trailer both i think very very excited by the potential of it you know judy garland is an iconic actress and singer her life is kind of uh, in a terribly uh, tragic in in so many ways and there's like a lot of great material there for a really great story about uh, you know which would be very timely about someone being chewed out by the hollywood system and kind of being left to fend for themselves and falling prey to addiction and you know kind of trying to make some sort of a comeback and there is in the same way that you know when judy garland was in the star is born and there was this kind of metatextual quality of her trying to get some sort of a comeback going by taking on this role of, of someone you know, kind of seeking acclaim. Like there seems to be some of that recursion going on with the casting of someone like Renée Zellweger as Judy Garland, because she is someone who was previously, you know, incredibly in demand in Hollywood and who uh, over the last 10 years or so kind of faded from, from view. Absolutely. And, you know, we know that she can do the high kicks, We've seen Chicago. I mm -hmm. am very excited about this, Ed. I did not expect myself to be, but as soon as I watched the trailer, I was intrigued. Though I have yet to see Fosse Verdon, which has been getting amazing um, reviews. I think there's definitely this kind of interesting and much really overdue kind of look at these kind of figures of, of women and actresses and performers 
And I think the last time we saw something like this was La Vie en Rose with uh, Marion Cotillard, and that was her Oscar mm. win um, for Edith Piaf. But I think what looks interesting about this to me is there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of kind of childhood flashback. And I I don't know. I think the performance looks great. Mm. And I think it looks quite set in its time and I think it looks like there's been a decision to focus on one point of her life rather than like yeah. a full-blown chronological biopic uh, which I think is pretty much done um, as Alan Sherstool wrote about um, towards the end of last year in Rolling Stone one of my favourite pieces of film criticism recently um, revisiting hours how Walk Hard almost destroyed the musical biopic because mm-hmm. Walk Hard was such a perfect <laughs> a pitch perfect thank you parody of that kind of tortured male musical figure basing off riffing heavily off of Walk the Line, which, remember, Reese Witherspoon mm. got an, an Oscar for for playing June Cash. God, the, the awards season is starting early, eh? Mm. This year, it feels like it comes around earlier every year. But yeah, I just think the trailer looked solid. And I'll, I think, you know, with the most recent version of A Star Is Born, out not that long ago i think i think there is kind of a there's going to be a thirst for that i just hope it's there's plenty of camp and not so much tragedy maybe that's foolish of me to hope for but i think maybe i'm just still annoyed at how what a mess the met gala carpet was and how (laughs) there was not enough of a simple favor being served like i think just stick Paul Feig and Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick up there and three of the straightest people <laughs> but who managed who managed to make an incredibly camp film I don't know yeah we'll see yeah I'm yeah my, my hope is that it's not too middle brow yes because that's always a death for these sort of things particularly for someone who lived you know a very kind of like flamboyant and kind of larger than life uh, you know life and career like I think it would be, it would do a disservice to Julie Garland if it ended up being a you know kind of very morose and obviously her her life, uh, like I said, you know it kind of ended uh, tragically young and she was very much someone who was done done badly by by Hollywood and most of the people in her life. So there's you know it's hard to tell her story and not have it be a little sad, but I think it there is a great potential there for something that um, celebrates the great talent that she was rather than just kind of wallowing in the kind of like the misery that marked some of the periods of her life. Yeah, so. kind of the, her iconic quality. And I mean, she's kind of like singing a slightly more melancholy version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. But mm. yeah, to really get across her talent, because that's that's where I think a lot of these things fall down is where it focuses entirely on the tragedy and doesn't get across the talent of this of this person because then what yeah. what are the stakes what what has been lost if you just focus like hammer on the misery and that's the thing that got to me about Livion Rosa a bit it was just like here is this relentless misery to this woman who sometimes sings and it didn't really get across <laughs> how amazing she was like I think um Gainsbourg is also like really slept on in terms of something that is much more imaginative and playful in terms of being able to show the um, biographical facts of an artist but still imbue it with such a sense of how they saw the world themselves you know although it is going to be really hard for me not to just refer to the film as judy 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 <laughs> that's the one that's the one sidestep yeah i keep thinking of it in terms of again to go back to twin peaks of uh david bowie saying like we're not going to talk about judy <laughs> it's, a, it's like we are we are bowie it's going to be a uh it's going to be a contender. You're going to have to talk about it. Um, unless it ends up being um, this year's first man, you know, being uh, first out the gate, gets kind of respectful reviews and then just kind of disappears by the time the actual season itself kicks into uh, kicks into gear. First man gets the trap, second Judy gets the cheese, right? That's that's an idiom. Yeah, a new, a new idiom for a new age. Um <laughs> So we'll go on to our main topic this week, which is concert movies. This is, you know, the last kind of main canonical episode that we did, as opposed to the episode that 
Matt and I did uh, about uh, Endgame. It was very much a shot, reverse shot story. Um, <laughs> we we talked about visual albums. And I thought it'd be fun to maybe try and string a couple of episodes together that were focused on on the music and the uh, interplay of music and visual media and obviously the the next logical step from that particularly in terms of you know how we were talking about lemonade last last time uh is concert movies and homecoming uh beyonce's account of her performance at coachella last year which debuted on netflix a couple of weeks ago and uh, it has been uh lavished with praise uh, as uh, both an encapsulation of a truly fantastic uh, pair of performances that she did over the two weekends of Coachella in 2018, but also through its kind of the documentary elements, the behind the scenes stuff, her discussing her intent with performing it and the way in which she very pointedly worked in all this stuff about historical black colleges and universities, HBCUs, which features very prominently in a lot of the aesthetics and performance elements of it. And so, yeah, so uh, jumping off from Homecoming, you know, I wanted to talk about concert movies that really do not not like transcend, you know, the the the, the specificity of the artist being captured, but the, the phenomenon of concert movies being really embraced and highlighted as, oh, this is like, this is what you can do to really kind of bring people's attention to capturing live music or uh, the essence of an artist because there are literally thousands of concert movies out there in terms of like you know back in the the, the housing days of uh, VHS and DVD pretty much any band would put out a concert movie at some point for, for, for the fans to to buy and in here in the US there's a channel called Palladia which always shows like live footage of festivals and bands performing shows and things like that so there is like a huge amount of footage out there of bands recording their sets and putting them out for people to enjoy but really and truthfully there's like a very small number that people often cite as being the kind of the great canonical concert movies and uh, and homecoming it's our early days but homecoming certainly seems to be one that's on the path to being included in that group so i watched homecoming today uh, all two hours and 17 minutes of it, but it did not feel like that at all. Mm. It is so pacey in terms of flipping between the two weekends of Coachella. Um, I came to think of it as like the yellow team and the pink team as I as it um, cut between the two of them. And mm. the documentary side that's threaded through it isn't isn't huge. There's actually not like a great amount of insight into how the show is made when you compare it to something like uh the lady gaga netflix documentary uh five foot two yeah which is mm. much more behind the scenes and then you don't actually see the super bowl concert at all so i wouldn't count it as a concert film it is a behind the scenes look it's a documentary about gaga it's not a concert film but yeah homecoming is a concert film and you just get a sense of um it gives you a hint of the work that went into it rather than the full, that's not the focus, which I think is quite interesting because Beyonce is credited as writing, directing, executive producing, homecoming. And it's clear that she's made the decision to be like, I'm not going to keep going on about how hard I worked, but I really did. Mm -hmm. I don't need to say it over and over again, but I, I did. And there's hundreds of days and it's really nuts sounding diet to be honest. probably the only thing she could eat was nuts um that she that she had in in prep for it but you can see it's someone who is absolutely dedicated and not only is she one of the biggest recording artists on the planet i think she's one of the most striking visual artists on the planet and mm. so much of the documentary side of it is quite poetic yeah in, in that she's kind of like being sort of giving answers to questions that it's almost like we're asking her we don't hear an interviewer we just mm. kind of have these like aphorisms of her work and her approach and I like it's interesting that you use that kind of grainy footage because I've been watching documentary now and it just looked like cast recording a company yeah so there's all these kind of like semiotically it's there's so much going on and it's really vivacious and really exciting like and and just on a 
quite sort of basic level, you feel like you were there. And I think that's mm. an important element for a concert film um, is to, it's not just a document, it needs to immerse you in what the experience of that concert was and what it meant at that time. And Homecoming does that amazingly. Mm. And I think like a lot of the best concert movies, it isn't just like, uh, and no disrespect to like the BBC and what they do when they cover like Glastonbury, but it doesn't feel like just the BBC Glastonbury coverage where no. they have like five angles that they switch between, like for every artist, like, you know, oh, there's one from the left-hand side of the stage, one from the right-hand side, the camera will swoop up every so often, pop, often during the chorus, you know, like there's a, it feels like the whole thing has been, very not just you know carefully choreographed in terms of like the dancers and you know the the musicians and how they interact and on each of the songs but like the camera movements are very very purposeful you have that from the opening where you have that camera kind of slowly pushing in on the drummer who then kind of blows the whistle then it goes past all the dancers and then it goes uh it eventually kind of reaches Beyonce and then she walks towards the camera it's giving you a feeling of what the concert felt like, but it's also giving you an angle that would have been impossible to have unless you were the camera operator. Oh, <laughs> um, absolutely. It's not just live mixing of set static points. It's not just a recording. And that, I think your point mm. about um, Glastonbury is absolutely right because that is just, it's coverage. It's not yeah. directed. It's not authored because it is mm-hmm. just the same standard setup for everyone who's going to be on the pyramid stage that day, for example. Yeah. Yeah, um, to paraphrase a um, Truman Capote on Kerouac, it's not film, it's footage. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that that does feel like the difference, I think, between a lot of the the kind of like the real great canonical concert movies is they aren't just content to be like, okay, we set the cameras up here, um, we got a lot of good stuff that we could edit together, we got a lot of fun crowd shots or whatever, you know, like it does really feel as if they're going, okay, we are going to recreate for you the ecstatic feeling of watching this performance and uh, i think uh, homecoming does that incredibly well like all of the performances in it do feel uh, like beyond immediate like it's not just like you are there it's like you are you are experiencing this thing uh, mm. in a way that even people who were there um would not have been able to because again that they would they didn't have those angles uh, i think you also see that in something like you know the kind of the big daddy i guess of concert movies which would be stop making sense mm. which is uh, directed by jonathan demi and has like the whole way in which that show is constructed is very much like we're not going to just tr- be like okay this is talking heads they're going to perform some songs like that is something that is constructed like homecoming like with some some kind of like a narrative thrust to it like oh, yeah. it has this idea of first David Byrne walks out on stage with just his guitar and a tape recorder to sing to sing Psycho Killer, and then as the show progresses, more members of the band are added on until you have you know the huge big the whole band out there and the backup singers, and they're doing things like him recreating a scene from a Gene Kelly movie where he's dancing with a hat rack, uh, and it's all very very deliberate and everything about it feels. Uh, like you say, it feels authored. It's not just the band are playing a show and they're very good and the songs yeah. are good. It's like we are in collaboration with our director to create an experience that goes beyond merely recording what Talking Heads were like in 1986. Totally. And it's that sense of performance art as well, which I think mm. comes across in a concert film where you've got, in Stop Making Sense, Burns big suit and just these kind of quite playful but it's also the idea of like setting a scene even if there's Mm. not like a specific narrative um because when you actually come to a concert film or when you come to a music video like it's amazing that there's still so many premises that can wow and make a point because you think well what what else do you do if you're if you're there for a gig surely you're just there to hear the music live and it's not you know it's adding this whole other dimension to to what is typically only a one-dimensional medium it's bringing through those Mm. dimensions and stop making sense of course pauline kale 
and, and Leonard Moulton and all these people are like, oh, it's the best, it's the best one, it's the best one. And I mean, it's it's one of the only ones that's been spoofed by the Muppets. So yeah. I so I'd say <laughs> that's pretty important. But then I'm gonna take a bit of a a bit of a left turn, but still sticking with Jonathan Demme. Um, mm. I when you said, oh, let's talk about concert films, my immediate thought was actually swimming to Cambodia, mm, which. Yeah is um, Spalding Gray's sort of monologue, really, mm. about um, his time in, in Southeast Asia whilst uh, sort of working on the killing fields. But also uh, with all the Spalding Gray's monologues, they managed to be immensely personal without being self-indulgent. Um, mm. And the, the music's Laurie Anderson, but the concert is Spalding Gray. Um, yeah. But it doesn't feel like a play there's something so specific in his performance that even though there is a score and it's not a musical performance, it manages to be a, a concert film because it's a gig, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. And it's one specific. And I'd, and I'd argue it's, it's a performance art thing that combines them. It's not, it's not actually music necessarily. It is the idea of a live event, and and Demi, you know, God, Jonathan Demi was just so incredible that he mm-hmm. managed to make Spalding Gray sitting at a table with a notebook, a glass of water, and occasionally a map, just absolutely hypnotizing. And the fact that the film is just under hour and a half, hour and forty, and yeah. the original version of Swimming to Cambodia is four hours long. Like there is some, there's an absolute power of work going on between um, Carol Littleton, the editor, and 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 Demi, and John John Bay, the DOP as well. Like, but you you just manage to, and you and you never see the audience either. Like that's the thing about Homecoming. Mm. Like I think what it manages to get across is how that point in Beyonce's career was not solely her fans like it's this cultural phenomenon and I think it's so important to see the audience because you see you know I don't like Coachella is renowned for being and Beyonce makes this joke you know basically rich white kids and flower crowns Mm, and and you have this audience who through Beyonce being the first black woman headliner of Coachella you know if you can't see it you can't be it is something that she flashes up as well. Um, but the, the audience is so key to that because they get a sense across of the fucking abundant joy of what Beyonce is bringing to them. Like it's such an exuberant and life-affirming performance. Um, whereas for me in Cambodia, you know, even though it, I think it was shot as him, as him actually performing it to an audience, you don't hear them, you don't see them. You feel you feel like he's doing it almost like just for you. So I think it's a a really unique piece of work, but definitely a concert film, I'd argue. And he does that same trick with Stop Making Sense as well, where the audience are there. It's a live performance or several live performances edited together to make it seem like one show. But the audience are like basically inaudible until the very end of the concert. I think in both cases, he, he being Jonathan Demi, wanted to not kind of uh, juice the performance by having the audience react in there, because that is a very easy thing to lean on in order to be like, oh, this is a thing that you should be excited about. Look yeah. how excited everyone is. Let's cut to a reaction shot of people like losing their minds over this stuff, which is you know not that that's... Uh, not a valid part of the grammar of concert movies. It's it can be very important, but like it is something that can be uh, can be a crutch to to a to a concert movie to just constantly rely upon the audience and to you know maybe put them higher up in the mix to make them seem like they're more excited, whereas cutting them out really does restrict you just to the performance and your own response to what the performance is, the performer is doing. I think it's interesting as well comparing Swimming to Cambodia to Steven Soderbergh's Grey's Anatomy, which is another adaptation of a Spalding Grey monologue, but that one uh, kind of 
dispenses with the idea of it being a live performance and tries to make it more filmic you know mm. the the camera's in constant motion it's very abstract and it's interesting in its own right in, in its attempt to take something that is a work of live theatre and to make it feel unlike live theatre whilst retaining its theatrical qualities but Swimming to Cambodia feels like a more successful venture overall because it does get across what makes Spalding Grave so compelling without uh, kind of overwhelming it with cinematic techniques. Another one in terms of, you know, the the, the canon of great concert movies uh, is The Last Waltz, the Martin Scorsese movie about the, uh, the final performance of the band. Mm. And at this point, we'll kind of like just uh, read a statement uh, from Matt Risby, who was a huge, who was a huge fan of the band, uh, they're one of his favorite groups ever. As I think came up on an episode of the show a few weeks ago, and uh, he pointed out that the Last Waltz is often held up as like kind of one of the great concert movies, but fans of the band really don't like it in general because it's seen as not necessarily representative of who they were as a band and the kind of stuff that they did and the nature of their performance because it it's a very it's kind of a solemn movie because it's them at their last performance. It, it's not really, I guess it's not really intending to be representative of their entire career. It's very much like this, this group is ending. It's very much meant to represent the end of an era for this group of people making music together. Um, but yeah, I could see why fans of the band would, might, might be very annoyed by that, by the fact that, this is the thing that I think most people know them for is this music, this, this movie, which is wholly under, uh, unrepresentative of what they actually did and who they were. Mm. I did try and promise Matt that you and I would say that quote back and forth in an, in a sort of endearing impression of him, a la mm. Andy Samberg and Jimmy Kimmel, but John yeah. Mulaney when they were doing Emmy jokes, but you know what I've tried and I just, I, I can't. He's he's inimitable. Yes, literally inimitable. Uh, <laughs> a, a singular human being, Matt Lesby. Um But but I, I I do yeah I do really like the Last Waltz. It's not a movie I watch um, terribly often because it's it's very long. <laughs> but I do yeah. really like how it captures the, the 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 feeling like that. There is that slightly funereal or, or not even funeral like there's a, a wake quality to it you know of people gathering together to celebrate the end of something and having all the guest stars come in and perform is uh, you know there, there is kind of a celebratory quality to it which uh, I, I really like I do think that Scorsese and uh, I, I think Thelma Shoemaker edited it I, I think it's probably a fair a fair bet to say that yeah. she probably edited it I think that they do really break the the strictures of what a concert movie can be you know the editing to it is really dynamic and they are they really do capture a feel of the band uh, although it's it's funny that i think one of the the best moments is it there's a there's a performance uh, i forget which song it is but there's a performance which is done in pretty much just a single take because i i think um all the other cameras either had broken or they had run out of film so like whoever this one camera operator had to record most of a single song just on his own because he was the only one who had a camera that was working <laughs> so, but but there it, it, you can really see uh, again uh, the filmmakers coming in with like a very strong vision for what they want the 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 concert movie to be like they're not just content to get a bunch of coverage and then edit it together they are very much going in saying okay this is meant to encapsulate a, a specific mood and feel and represent a capstone to this band's career. And I think that that's one of the things I really uh, respond to it. Like it does feel very melancholy, but celebratory at the same time in a way that uh, may not have been captured if they had just, you know, got any anyone to come in and just film it, uh, as opposed to like Scorsese, who obviously is a kind of fantastic and great filmmaker and <laughs> someone who also... Uh, deeply loved and I'm pretty sure lived with one of the bands <laughs> at the time hey so didn't of... we all live with Scorsese at one point Ed mm, yeah you live with Scorsese twice in your career once on the way up once on the way down <laughs> it's an interesting uh, point that you raised there about 
I guess we haven't really coming back to the idea of like what the function of a of a concert film is. Like mm. maybe it's not just for the fans. Maybe maybe there's a way of capturing a band at a certain time and place. Yeah. or you know recording artist in a point in their career and maybe that's not always going to be for the fans and it's more in you know maybe someone who isn't as familiar to oh, and that's their window in to them culturally mm. yeah i think you see a lot of that in shut up and play the hits the lcd yes. sound system documentary slash concert movie yes which it is very kind of clearly been designed to capture them on doing their final show. What what at the time were billed as their final shows, and then they rendered the whole thing pointless by reuniting like five years later. But you know they they were very much at the time intending to finish. You know they said okay we're going to do a bunch of of shows at Madison Square Garden, and then that's going to be it. And that the the live performances are shot in a way that really emphasizes. Um, in some ways their relationship to their fans but also their relationship to each other and there is a, a very clear sense of finality to all that stuff and then it's intercut with interviews with James Murphy talking to Chuck Klosterman where he's talking about why he wants to end the band and his feelings about fame and things like that and then bits of him just going around his his daily life going to his office and stuff like that uh, and that definitely feels like a concert movie that is being made you know, it's it. The fans are factored into it in the sense that you know you are you do see lots of uh, crowd shots of the the fans reacting to the songs and the emotional impact of what those songs mean for a lot of people. But it is very much intended as a document and as a kind of a, a an end point for that band's uh, career, or you know now an end point to a phase in their career. Yeah, which we which. I mean, we're not really going to see that. I think LCD Sound System was the last sort of big, big one, really recently, mm. wasn't it? Because the other sort of concert films I was thinking about in regards to chatting tonight were that kind of spate in the early 2010s, or it felt like a spate. It was only two, but they felt ubiquitous because of uh, the subjects. But the Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, and Katy mm. Perry, Part of Me, mm. you know, uh, two key inspirations for the best film ever made as people are coming around um to our way of thinking ed of us fighting the good fight of uh, pop star never stop never stopping but mm. the, the thing about those two they it's where it feels like oh this is just pop promo isn't it mm. that and the jonas brothers one as well oh like my that. god yes yeah, the- with the ridiculous foam firing sequence, which I remember South Park making fun of and everyone being like, this is ridiculous. And then everyone watched the movie. It's like, oh, they are just spraying their fans with foam. <laughs> just lifted it. Didn't even have to parody it. Just lifted it. And and all of this stuff about, you know, 3D and, and the idea of like, oh, well, maybe that's, you know, adding that dimension will make you feel that you're there. Um, mm. And so... And I think that's where the concert film really starts to go down that line of just kind of blatant promotion and the kind of artistry gets sucked out of it. Um, Mm. And I think, unfortunately, that's the majority of concert films. I'd be interested to see who does one next. And there is talking with you about concert films, having spoken about visual albums, there is such a such a keen difference between the two because Mm. homecoming and lemonade have so much of the same base matter Mm. but they're two completely different takes of of beyonce and i think that's the way to kind of that's the way i kind of like hold up the you know the nugget to the lights like is this a concert film or is it visual album and i think that's a, a pretty clear delineator to compare the difference between those two it is very interesting watching Homecoming and seeing her perform all the songs from Lemonade. That obviously stemmed from a deeply painful thing that happened in her life mm. and was her, you know, kind of really trying to work through uh, a sense of betrayal and this, like, real test to her marriage, which by the time the Lemonade came out, I think, you know, they had, they had reconciled somewhat. But, like, this is obviously like several years removed from that and you see Jay-Z in the documentary from time to time and there is that real sense of like oh the, the these songs they're still 
they were written in from a place of, of pain and anger. But, you know, when she's performing them live and everyone's singing along, they are they are placed in a very different context. You know, they become really kind of like joyous and defiant in a way that is is apparent on some songs on the record, but is amplified like a thousandfold when you have tens of thousands of people like uh, singing sorry along with her or things like that. Yeah, yeah. And how in Homecoming as well, there is a sense of like, it feels like a really incredible sort of long string of her 22 year, as she, as she says, career, because there's so mm. many different, and how she kind of weaves in her sister, how she weaves in Destiny's Child, how she weaves in Jay-Z. So even though the main focus of it is Lemonade, it really does feel like a kind of rounded journey through how she's got to that point today. And not just in terms of her musical career, but in terms of like the historically black colleges and universities and, and how that really struck her and patching in different kind of quotes um, from Malcolm X and Toni Morrison. And it's amazing because it does feel like, yes, she, is, she has come home and she talks about home that she has built for herself. But it's such an expression of how she couldn't have done it without history behind her <laughs> and mm. the work of activists and things which again is a, is a theme in, in Lemonade, the visual album, but it seems to kind of come across even stronger because Lemonade came out in 2016 and, and yeah. Homecoming is kind of, you know, the work of from, from that Coachella and up until now. And it's kind of amazing to also hold on to that document of like, yet yeah, it has not let up Beyonce's cultural phenomenon. <laughs> and it's, mm. you know, where is it going to go next? I think. I, uh, Another kind of to to keep in the Netflix realm of of concert movies, another one that came out uh, last year that I think is really interesting in terms of an artist putting like their entire career within a single concert and a perspective was uh, Springsteen Live on Broadway. Yeah, where he recorded. I'm gonna I'm gonna assume it's like several performances of of his uh, Broadway show that he did for months and months on end, where he would get up every night and perform for you know three solid hours performing songs talking about songs uh and and his life and that is a real formally it's it's uh you know not the most adventurous thing ever and it can't it can't really you know that there's restrictions to what you can do in a broadway theater in terms of you know you're not going to suddenly rig in uh a crane to kind of like swoop around the place um but it really does capture, you know, the intimacy of these performances. It's just him on stage for the most part, either playing guitar or piano. Sometimes he's accompanied by uh, his wife, but for the most part, it's just him uh, and an instrument and a microphone talking to people in a very small theatre of like only like 400, 500 people or so. And that's a, a, a good case of uh, a concert movie, you know, not being that formally daring or adventurous, but still but that fitting the thing that it's capturing which is a very simple show of uh, a man who's been in the entertainment business for 40 years and who has made his living writing these often very beautiful songs about you know everyday life and him then using that as an opportunity to unpack them to talk about the fact that you know you know i've been in a band for basically my whole life i, I don't really think i've had a proper job <laughs> a lot of these stories are me kind of uh, concocting people and it's it's really beautiful how those have connected to people and i think that's a, a really interesting example of again the 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 line between concert movie and performance are kind of blurring a little bit there he is the boss so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot first shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week back to life which is mm. a series um on you can get on BC iPlayer, um, starring and co-created and co-written by Daisy Haggard, who some may know as um, the wonderful uh, mum of Errol and sister to Nick Helm in Uncle. Um, she's also in Episodes. And she's just a fantastic comedic actress who you see pop up in, in so much stuff. Um, and as far as I'm aware, this is her first um, self-helmed show. And it manages to be a brilliant mix of um, dark comedy, thriller. There's some brilliant cameos in there as it follows um, Daisy's character, Miri, who has come out of prison 18 years after she went in at the age of 18 and secrets come out and 
it's her trying to, well, get back to life um, as uh, the, the TV show title. Um, and it is just so fantastically well-rounded and there's so many different threads running through it. It's absolutely amazing um, that Daisy Haggard and her co-writer, Laura Solon, um, just help wove it all together. Cannot recommend it enough. Fantastic. I am going to recommend a podcast called Blank Check with Griffin and David. It's a podcast about filmographies, directors who have tremendous success early on in their career and who are given a blank check to make whatever crazy passion project they like. It's uh, hosted by David Sims, who writes for The Atlantic and previously used to write for the AV Club, and uh, Griffin Newman, who's an actor who currently can be seen as the lead on Amazon's The Tick. And the premise of the podcast is that they spend, you know, have many episodes looking through the entire filmography of directors who they feel had a you know kind of like a a movie that allowed them to to kind of do whatever they wanted at some point in their career i'm recommending it now because they just finished their 20 something episode run on tim burton which um i think anyone who knows tim burton's uh, arc they can probably guess how that one went it's 10 episodes of terrific enthusiasm and then 10 episodes of uh, of less enthusiasm but they've just announced their next two miniseries which are going to be on Michael Mann and on Hyao Miyazaki who are two directors I, I love a great deal and I think it's a good place for anyone who wants to jump on board with them they're very uh, funny very silly uh, but also very insightful and very obsessive about pop culture it's a it's a really great entertaining show it's, it's a podcast that I leap at the chance to listen to every time I see that there's a new episode in my uh, in my feed so I, I really recommend that. If people want to jump in from the beginning, I would just caution that the early days of the show are very different to what it became because it started out as a podcast entirely about the Phantom Menace, but from the conceit being that they acted as if the Phantom Menace was the only Star Wars movie they knew about, so they had to try and assess it as a individual work of art on its own which is very very funny it's a very funny bit and allows them to go into some weird ways and kind of dissecting does this movie work at all if you imagine that someone would watch it not knowing that it's the prequel to three massively successful movies but is uh, very different from what the the show has become where they look at you know michael mann obviously coming up tim burton but also the m night Shyamalan they've done the wachowskis late period spielberg nancy myers who won their who won their bracket for March Madness last year? Uh, yeah, it's just it's just a really really one. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, that's a very good one for anyone who wants to to kind of sample them. Their Catherine Bigelow miniseries is, is really fantastic. So yeah, that's Blank Check with Griffin and David. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Acast, Player FM. Uh, you can listen to us on Spotify as well. Raters, reviewers, and recommend to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but probably music-based, if we <laughs> can keep the theme going. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye!